Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and wellness and today's guest has dedicated a a lot of his time and energy towards this uh, very topic. His name is Larry Sprung. He's the founder and wealth advisor at Midland Financial in Hophog, New York on Long Island or Strong Island, as we Long Islanders sometimes like to call it. You know, he's also the host of the Midland Money Mindset podcast, a great podcast. You might want to check that one out. And Larry, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you do you call it on Long Island or in Long Island? It depends. I've used both. <laughs> but thank, thanks for having me, Diana. I've, I've used it both. It, it's weird sometimes saying that. But yeah, sometimes I say I'm in Long Island. And I, I guess the proper term would be on Long Island rather than in. Yeah, I um, once when I moved out here, um, I'm in Plainview, Long Island, um, not too far from you. But um, you know, I started saying on Long Island. I don't know why, but uh, it sounds better. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Larry founded Midland Financial in 2004, and I love what he says on his website about the the meaning of the firm's name. Um, he says it's named in memory of his wife uh, of his wife's grandfather Mitchell and his mother Linda. Uh, My mom is more than just the Lynn in Midland. She's the reason I do what I do. As a teen, I watched my parents struggle with their finances as my mom battled breast cancer for more than a decade. And this became the the driving force that led me on my journey to to founding Midland Financial. I was also inspired by the story of Mitchell, though I've never met him, but I've heard countless stories about his giving nature and willingness to lend an open ear. When I was forming Midland Financial, I thought a lot about these two people who remarkably passed away within hours of each other. I feel that they embody so many of the qualities we want to have in our firm. And to this day, we keep their stories in mind and strive to bring the values they exhibited to everybody we work with. But in 2004, um, another person close to Larry passed away. And you know, it had a profound effect on him and the work he's doing now. Right before Larry was set to to break away and launch his own firm, his brother-in-law, Keith Milano, who um, had suffered from bipolar disorder, died by suicide. And now, you know, Larry's dedicated much of his time and energy to bringing awareness to mental health and suicide prevention. And you know he he serves on the board or he he did serve on the board for many years of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he's raised with his wife in excess of one point seven million dollars for that organization. Um, just some some great work, Larry. Um, but let's let's back up and you know what uh, what led to Keith's suicide? What led up to that? I mean, what were some of the mental health issues that he was suffering from? 
Yeah. So, you know, thank you for that. I actually got chills because I don't necessarily all the time hear somebody read the story of how we <laughs> came up in the name and it gave me chills. So thank you for sharing that with everybody. And yeah, I mean, listen, we have to let's let's just put this in context again. I know you mentioned 2004 and as much as I'd like to think that that was yesterday, you know, it's <laughs> approaching 17 years ago, 18 years ago at this point. Wow. So things things were a lot different back then than they are today. And he had some issues in terms of his mental health. Uh, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And, you know, the way that he would explain it to me was it wasn't just a mental health issue. It was really a physical issue, too, because our brains are such an important part of our systems and our bodies. And what he would extend or how he would explain it is he felt like he was waking up every day, like he had the flu. And he had 105 mm. fever, you know, body aches, just didn't feel good, didn't feel right. And, you know, we're talking about a guy who was in his late 20s, you know, 27 when he passed and in shape, went to the gym every day, you know, a good looking guy. And unfortunately, his brain didn't function, you know, maybe the same way mine did. And he had this bipolar disorder and he just, didn't feel like it was something that I guess he could overcome. And ultimately, just like cancer takes, you know, many folks' lives out there, just like it took my mom. Uh, he, you know, my my brother-in-law Keith was a victim to uh, mental health and bipolar disorder as a result. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, I know I've had folks in, in my life who died by suicide. And I guess I was thinking I didn't, you know, call that person enough or I didn't do enough. But I, I know you and your wife were were really supporting him a lot, um, you know, lead, leading up to that and and just being there for him. Um, what were you in what ways did you guys sort of support him through yeah. his issues? Yeah. So, I mean, Diana, yeah, you listen, there's always that level of, you know, what I could have or should have done. And, you know, regardless of how involved you're, you are with them, you, you always have those thoughts to some degree. And uh, I'm sure you did a lot for those folks that, that, you know, and, you know, with regard to my brother-in-law, it wasn't really, it wasn't just even me and my wife. It was really the whole family unit, my in-laws, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, you know, we saw the struggle that we were, he was having, and we were all there to support him and to do whatever was necessary to help him get better. And, you know, even beyond the family unit, uh, I will tell you the company that he worked for prior to his death in Virotrack. Uh, which is an environmental consulting company out on the east end of Long Island, they were super supportive. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. whatever he needed, if he needed time off to go to the doctor, whatever, whatever he needed, they were supportive. So he had this whole structure around him that was supporting him and there for him and willing to do whatever was needed. Uh, my wife would go with him to, uh, you know, uh, appointments with his uh, psychiatrist to make sure that he was going, make sure that he was following whatever protocols the doctor was uh, prescribing, or at least being an advocate for him and asking questions about uh, the specific um, regimens that they were looking to use. My brother-in-law would come over my house sometimes in the middle of the day. He'd need a you know a mental health break, and he was in the area. He'd come by, kind of hang out with uh, my son for a little bit. He was very young at the time, or even just take a you know re relaxation on 
on the couch or something like that. So we were always having conversations. We were always with him. And going back to you know one of the last times I spent with him, I recall we were uh, planting a tree in my backyard. And you know this is when he kind of opened up to me and said mm-hmm. to me about him feeling like he had the flu every day, the body aches, and he felt like he was running out of time. And I said to him, I said, just out of curiosity, why do you feel like you're running out of time? I said, you don't have a wife. You don't have kids. You have a place to stay and to live. We're all supportive. We're here to help you however short or however long it takes to get uh, you on the right path. We're here. So how? And it was just the way his mind processed it that he didn't feel like he had the time. And I think one of the issues... Um, you know, which I don't think I shared with you in the pre-interview, but, you know, one of the issues that came up was April of the year that he passed, the April prior, uh, he was hospitalized for a short period of time over, I believe it was Easter break. And uh, we were, there was a level of concern that he might hurt himself at that point. And um, unfortunately, because it was a holiday weekend at the facility he was at, uh, they didn't have enough staff to cover all of the floors on that unit. So essentially, they ended up consolidating the floors. And he was basically on the same floor with people who were far worse than he was from a mental health uh, standpoint. Uh, you know, some psychotics, schizophrenics. Uh, you know, some some really significantly. Uh, larger issues than he had at that moment. And we went to visit him and he looked myself, my wife and my in-laws in the, in the eye. And he said, I'm not coming back here again. And I'm not ending up like that. And mm. I, I think to some degree that always stuck in his head. And for whatever reason, when, you know, that September rolled around, I guess he felt like he was out of time. Um, but, you know, again, I don't think that somebody who's in that moment and I'm not a medical practitioner and I, I don't, I can't tell you exactly what was going through his mind in that moment, but to some degree, I feel like, you know, the person in that moment is not there. And I I think the most telling sign for my brother-in-law is, you know, he passed away in my in-law's house. And if you know my in-laws and you know my brother-in-law, that would have been if he was of the right mind and had a sense of what he was doing and what was going on, he would never have done that. So to some degree, you know, we feel like it wasn't even him. So we Mm. supported him all along the way. So, you know, we feel even so much so the night before he passed, he called our house. My wife and I had a conversation with him. He seemed a little manic and we were concerned. We reached out to some friends. So we, we were involved the entire time. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that's an unfortunate outcome from a, uh, a disease that he suffered from. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was looking at some of the pictures on the Memorial Fund website that you guys have for him and he was an, he was a handsome guy. He, he, he looked, it was. Uh, you know, how did you guys sort of respond um, when it happened? Um, you know, was it, was it a shock to you guys? I, I know you had to break the news to, to your wife, which was, I can imagine was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, (laughs) it's a little bit of a blur, but I I also Mm -hmm. remember it uh, very vividly. And, and, and just one, if I could just go astray for a moment, you know, you, you're referenced him being a handsome guy and 
being looking happy. For those folks who may be listening, who are Long Islanders that used to go out to the boarding barn, which doesn't exist anymore as of, I think this year, he used to dress up in a Superman costume and go out there. He was the (laughs) life of the party, Uh, but Mm -hmm. he was one of those typical folks that if you looked at him, you would never know anything was wrong with him, but he was, you know, he was struggling internally. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, in that moment, was I surprised? I guess there was a, you know, there's always that element of surprise, but at the same time, seeing what he went through in April and having that conversation and him telling us, feeling that he's running out of time and not going to end up like that, you know, it wasn't as much, I, I don't know that it was as big a surprise as uh, if it would have happened out of the blue and we weren't as involved with him as we were. It definitely was one of the most difficult things that I've ever done is taking the, having my wife hand me the phone. You got to talk to my dad you know, my father-in-law and my father-in-law relays the news to me. And he says, you have to tell Denise, cause I, I can't bring myself to tell her. And, uh, you know, I shared that news and, and you know, after the initial shock kind of wore off, I think, you know, the, the next thing that we started thinking about was we, we didn't want him to go Keith. We didn't want him to go quietly. And, you know, meaning that we, we saw other people with mental health issues and, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the wake and the funeral, uh, we were getting approached by people left and right who said, Hey, my uncle suffered or my uncle, you know, my aunt, uh, crashed her car into a tree. Well, at least that's what we tell the family. And we, mm. we quickly realized that there was this sense that there was a lot of people out there that wouldn't or aren't telling the real story for whatever reason. Uh, you know, everybody could do what they feel is right. And we felt then in that moment that it was almost our obligation to Keith and to help and prevent others to tell the story. Uh, you know, exactly how it happened in order to potentially prevent others from feeling that they were alone and going through this uh, by themselves, which my brother-in-law, even though there was all this support, kind of felt like nobody understood what he was going through, even us that we were there. So we wanted to share that story to make others feel uh, comfortable in doing the same and promote the ability for people to understand that mental health is important and it shouldn't be brushed under the rug and it needs to be something that's talked about. So that's kind of how we created this mission in his name, you know, to let him continue living beyond his uh, physical life and, and uh, you know, help help and continue to help others. Yeah. I think that's great because that's, um, you know, one of the main reasons I launched this podcast was to, um, you know, uh, let the industry be more open and transparent about mental health issues. Um, and so that's, that's just uh, really part of the mission that I have. Here's just some statistics from, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, just to kind of put things into perspective, um, the age-adjusted suicide rate in 2020 was 13.48 per 100,000 individuals. The rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men, um, you know, which, as you know, this industry is is dominated by, by that demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, on average, there are 130 suicides per day. And I guess they did a survey of, of adults, 93% of adults think suicide can be prevented. And according to the National Occupational Mortality Surveillance, individuals who work in financial services are 1.5 times more likely to commit suicide 
than the national average. Um, the, the highest suicide rates in the U.S. are among doctors, dentists, and veterinarians. I mean, obviously, I know um, Keith was was not in financial services, but um, just trying to help you know put this in perspective for for our, our listeners and for this industry. And I know that Keith's situation you know sort of led you to develop a passion for suicide prevention. Um, and so how did you find out about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and get involved with mental health awareness? Yeah. So just to kind of put those statistics in uh, perspective, if you, you know, if I can, for just a moment, that mm-hmm. those 2020 rates were actually showed a slight decline, which was the okay. first time in a long time that we saw a decline in numbers in that year. And, uh, hmm. you know, the 2021 numbers, uh, you know, have not come out yet. Those will come out at the end of this year, but uh, we'll see. So, you know, we're losing about 40,000 plus people to suicide every year, which is, uh, you know, if you think about it and you look at the numbers, it's almost an equal number of suicides uh, versus those that we lose to breast cancer cancer, uh, which is what my mom uh, passed away from. And mm-hmm. I know that because I started looking at those numbers after Keith passed. But um, we we, uh, we are familiar with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I, I think it was either my wife and or my mother-in-law shortly after Keith's passing, they were looking for organizations and opportunities possibly to either give back or get involved or see even what resources and organizations were out there. Because being that we had not experienced a suicide previously, we, we had no idea. And uh, essentially, uh, you know, he passed in September. And I, I think it was my mother-in-law found that AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, was doing a local community walk here on Long Island. And mm-hmm. we were like, let's do it. So we uh, we invited a whole bunch of people. We had a large group uh, attend. It was a walk at uh, Old Westbury Gardens, which is, you know, if you're not from Long Island, it's a beautiful location. It's a beautiful place to take a walk on a nice day. And uh, we started raising money. And I think we raised like ten or $15,000, uh, perhaps maybe even more in order to uh, you know participate or as a result of participating in that walk. And mm-hmm. it, was a, it, it was a nice day. I mean, for, you know, it, we were surrounded by probably at that time, four or 500 other people that had been impacted by suicide. And uh, it, it was interesting interesting to see how many people are affected uh, by it and and hearing their different stories and coming together with people. So that was kind of the entree into uh, AFSP. And then it kind of just took off uh, from there. We started you know, doing some more research. They were a leader in, in the industry back then. Um, they weren't as big a leader as they are now. They're probably the number one organization right now today in, in suicide prevention in terms of research and prevention measures. And uh, it's just been a great organization for our family to be involved with and me to have the pleasure to have served on their national board for as long as I did. And and I still sit on their investment committee and and finance committee uh, to this day. Mm, That's great. How do you, how how did his uh, suicide impact you personally and sort of change how you live your life? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely changed things a bit. Um, I don't think it uh, impacted things as much as it would have had I not lost my mom. And mm. so, you know, just kind of understanding that I lost my mom. She passed away at the age of 47. 
Uh, I was about 23. I think mm. you know, she passed away the day after my 23rd birthday. Um, so after losing my mom at a very early age, I had a little bit different outlook than others do perhaps in this business early on in terms of I prioritize family first. I understood that we don't have this unlimited uh, amount of time available to us. And I, I think what happened was when we lost my brother-in-law, it really just reinforced that. And yeah. my, my brother-in-law passed away when my oldest was uh, 18 months. My uh, my youngest wasn't even born yet. So it was like, it, it was almost like a wake-up call for me because I'd always been family-oriented, family first, but now I had kids and then losing Keith, it just really elevated and reinforced the fact that, hey, we don't have any kind of guarantees going forward. And, you know, if we if we want to spend that time that we have in the most meaningful way, you know, from a business perspective, it, it just created this lens for me to look at things in terms of, you know, if I have an evening that my son has a hockey game and I want to be there, I put it on the calendar. And if somebody, you know, requests to meet at that time, you know, unless it's an emergency on their part or their family, I, I, I proactively tell them that I have family time that night. And most of the time, you know, just about all the time, uh, you know, most of the folks that we work with because they, they know our values and they have similar values, appreciate it and, and understand, uh, you know, why I, you know, we make that decision to, uh, to do that. So I, I think that's really what it did. It really just reinforced and, and, uh, impacted me in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this industry is, you know, is fraught with mental health issues, but it's often, you know, brushed under the rug. It's not talked about. And, you know, there's sort of a stigma, perhaps, around, um, you know, mental health disorders. What have you seen in terms of how the wealth management industry deals with mental health issues? Yeah, I mean, I have not seen much in terms of mental health for our profession. Okay, mm-hmm. I just I have not seen until recently. And what I mean by that is, so one of the things that I did was, um, and I'm not, you know, if your listeners are familiar, I'm, uh, my firm is a Carson partner firm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're part of Carson group and, uh, you know, the head of our, you know, head of the organization is Ron Carson and he's come out, uh, in recent months, recent year, you know, recent year or so talking about, uh, some of the struggles his own mom had from a mental health perspective. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things I applaud Carson Group doing is they've formed a partnership with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and they're doing like a monthly workshop series with the stakeholders out in Omaha. Hmm. Um, and actually, just this week, uh, Ron did a fireside chat with a physician in the mental health profession. So, what I would say to this is, I have not seen much around this topic in our profession to date. I think having folks, you know, us having this conversation, for example, having folks like Ron Carson uh, engage and have that conversation, and we need more folks like him, like you, like me to generate these conversations. I, I think 
you'll start seeing more and more of it. And I, and I think that it has to come from a couple of sides. I think we have to take care of our own health as advisors. Mm-hmm. I think we have to look out for the health of our clients and, or, and the families we serve. And we have to look out for the health of our stakeholders or employees. You know, So I, I think there's a lot of responsibility there as people in the profession. And if you're not an owner, then you have to look out for your coworkers. And I, I think that this conversation is uh, starting and I think we're going to see it become more commonplace and uh, you know more relevant in the uh, the months and years to come yeah that's great I did not know Ron was doing that um, did he connect with AFSP through you or he did so he did a back in uh, October November of 2021 he did a town hall meeting at mm-hmm. the Carson group headquarters. Uh, with a couple of physicians uh, from the uh, the local university there. And I saw it. And at the beginning, he told his story. And mm-hmm. a lot of the employees were very engaged and very interested. So I, I reached out to Ron and you know I explained my involvement and why I was involved. And he's like, we got to have a conversation. And essentially, I coordinated AFSP. We have an area director out there, uh, Cindy Horning, which is our area director in, in uh, Nebraska and connected her with Carson Group. And it's been a fantastic partnership. And we've, we've flown out one of our uh, research people, uh, Doreen, Dr. Doreen Marshall has gone out there and, and had a conversation with the stakeholders there. And you know these are the things that we need to be doing in order to take care of all those um, stakeholders that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a great point because um, you know, advisors do, uh, you know, sort of need to take care of themselves, you know, before they can really take care of clients and help clients, um, you know, especially um, if they have clients going through, you know, mental health, well-being issues. Do you have any sort of advice or resources that you can point advisors to who who want to, you know, sort of incorporate mental health into their practices? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all have a responsibility to incorporate it somehow. And I think if, you know, we as advisors talk about it and, you know, talk about it publicly, whether it's our own issues and struggles or anecdotally things that we've seen or gone through, um, it'll just open up that conversation and make clients more comfortable contacting us if they're having issues. And, you know, quite frankly, I recently had a client reach out to me. Uh, He was having some struggles, asked for some assistance. He's been unemployed for a little while, having a tough time finding a job and uh, he was struggling. So I helped him out with some, you know, some uh, specific resources that he needed, but I, I assure you, he would never have called me or reached out to me if it wasn't for the fact that I've been so upfront and vocal about mental health. So I think having those conversations is certainly important. Um, in terms of resources, I would highly recommend folks. There's a ton of resources at uh, on the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website, which is AFSP Adam Frank Sam Paul.org. Um, you know, one of one of the um 
one of the programs that they have for those advisors that either run their own practice or have their own firms is they have a program called Talk Saves Lives, where you can have somebody from AFSP come in and they start the conversation with you and your stakeholders uh, in the office about how to talk about this stuff, what's proper, what's not. And I think that those are great tools for organizations to look look at. And uh, basically, we have at least one chapter in every state at this point. We have somebody who covers every state at this point. So it's not something that you as an advisor or you as an owner operator have to worry about setting up worrying about learning all this stuff, we will send in the qualified folks that will help educate you and your teams. And if that doesn't work for you, there's plenty of personalized type resources that you can go on that site. There's pretty much something for everyone that will help you think about those conversations that you're having, whether it's with, you know, kind of thinking about your own situation, talking with your stakeholders or the families you serve. There's a lot of uh, great information there. Yeah. And I think a lot of us know folks that are struggling with mental health issues, You know, whether it's depression. Um, you know, I have a family member who is schizophrenic. Um, any advice about just how we can help those folks or be there for them or support them in their struggles? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you listen, you have to, you have to ask, you have to talk to them. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the most important thing. I think sometimes when you're approaching these things or these situations, you know, you're like, ah, you know, should I, I think they're struggling, but you know, I, I don't want to bother them. You know what? Your conversation, you asking them how they're really do, could be the difference between them living or or not living. It really mm-hmm. could. And it, it's sometimes that easy. And you know, there are things that you know you can do everything right in the world and it'll still end up in a bad result, like it did with my brother-in-law, because I can honestly say that we all did everything we possibly could. But I think we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our fellow human beings to at least ask the questions in a general in a genuine way to open that conversation now of course if you feel that the person is, or you yourself are in crisis i think the first thing that you should do is call the crisis hotline which is um, the 800 number 800-273-8255 or if you text the word talk t a l k to 741-741. Those are two resources. Hopefully soon, there also will be rolling out, I believe in July of 2022, the uh, 988 line, which is basically a mental health or suicide uh, prevention hotline similar to 911. So Mm. if you know somebody that, you know, if somebody's in need and you you think they're in a in a precarious position, those are two things that you should think about doing. Um, And I will tell you, you don't have to be the one in distress. So if you are afraid or concerned for somebody, you can call or text those lines and they will help you as an individual to help the other person navigate it because every situation may need to be handled a little bit differently. But if it's not to that extreme and you just, you know, they're depressed or you see something wrong, say something. You know, we have a, a program or a, uh, 
an ad campaign called Seize the Awkward, which is all over Instagram. And it, it really is you know, geared towards teenagers. And it's saying, basically, if you're struggling, say something. You know, don't be fearful of ruining or tarnishing a relationship because if you don't say anything and you're because you're afraid of tarnishing a relationship, there is a possibility that the relationship will no longer be there because the person will no longer be with us. So mm. you're better off saying something and risking it. And, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of just being there and listening. So I, I think we have to get a little bit better at uh, having those conversations. And I think that, you know, quite frankly, we are. Uh, a lot better now than where we were 17, 18 years ago when we lost my brother-in-law. We're in a much better spot, uh, you know, with lowering the stigma, having people more comfortable in having these conversations than we were at that time when uh, when he passed. Yeah, well, um, thank you so much for those resources. That's really helpful. I'm, I'm impressed that you know all those numbers off the top of your head. Well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time, um, but I'd like to thank my guest, Larry Sprung, for being on the podcast and uh, you know, just opening up about these issues. Larry, thank you so much. Thank you, Diane. I appreciate it greatly, and I applaud you uh, for this podcast and for bringing these issues to light because it's conversations like these that will reduce stigma and allow people to feel the comfort to come out and have these uh, difficult conversations. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, I th- I hope that this is a this podcast, you know, sort of provides some some step in the right direction. Um, but if you'd if you'd like to reach out to Larry yourself, um, you can reach him at lsprung at midlandfinancial.com. You can find him on social. Um, I know he's on Twitter. But if you yourself have a struggle, you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.